This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Victims' Rights, The Biblical View of Civil Justice by Gary North. Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright 1990. This book is dedicated to Baby Doe and the 50 million other victims who are aborted annually worldwide. They, not their executioners, deserve our compassion. Chapter 4. The Costs of Private Conflict And if men strive together, and one smite another with a stone, or with his fist, and he die not, but keepeth his bed, if he rise again and walk abroad upon his staff, then shall he that smote him be quit. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time, and shall cause him to be thoroughly healed. Exodus 21, 18 and 19 The theocentric principle here is that man is God's image, and that for anyone to strike another person unlawfully or autonomously is an attempt to commit violence against God. It is man as God's representative that places him under the covenantal protection of civil government. The state is required by God to protect men from the physical violence of other men. One of the primary earthly goals of any godly society is the elimination of conflict among its citizens. The establishment of a reign of peace is one of the most prominent promises in the Old Testament's prophetic messages. Peace is therefore a sign of God's blessing and also a means of attaining other blessings, such as economic growth. Men who strive together in private battle testify to their own lack of self-discipline, and a godly legal order must provide sanctions against such disturbances of public order. The Bible reminds men that they are responsible before God and society for their private actions. Specific costs are imposed by biblical law on the victor in any physical conflict. The eventual loser is to be protected and so is his family, whose rights he cannot waive simply by stepping into the arena. The loser is to be compensated for his loss of time while in bed and also for his medical expenses. In short, the victor must make restitution to the loser. The mere possession of superior strength or combat skills is not to be an advantage in the resolution of personal disputes. We see a similar perspective in the Hittite laws. Quote, if anyone batters a man so that he falls ill, he shall take care of him. He shall give him a man in his stead who can look after his house until he recovers. When he recovers, he shall give him six shekels of silver, and he shall also pay the physician's fee. If anyone breaks a free man's hand or foot, he shall give him twenty shekels of silver and pledge his estate as security. If anyone breaks the hand or foot of a male or female slave, he shall give ten shekels of silver and pledge his estate as security. End quote. Men must pay the costs of restoring the injured party to physical wholeness. Winners and losers. These economic restraints on victors remind men of the costs of injuring others. There are economic costs borne by the physical confrontation's loser. There are also costs borne by society at large. A man in a sickbed can no longer exercise his calling before God. 
He cannot labor efficiently, and the products of his labor are not brought to the marketplace. If he is employed by another person, the employer's operation is disrupted. By forcing the physical victor to pay for both the medical costs and the alternative cost, forfeited productivity on the part of the loser, biblical law helps to reduce conflict. The physical victor becomes an economic loser. The law also ensures society against having to bear the medical costs involved. The immediate family, charitable institutions, or publicly, publicly financed medical facilities do not bear the costs. The Mishnah, which was the legal code for Judaism until the late 19th century, establishes five different types of compensation. First, compensation for the injury itself, meaning damages for permanent injury that results from the occurrence. Second, compensation for the injured person's pain and suffering. Third, compensation for the injured person's medical expenses. Fourth, compensation for the injured person's loss of earnings, time. Fifth, compensation for the embarrassment or indignity suffered by the victim. Not all five will be found in each case, of course. The judicially significant point is that the person who wins the conflict physically becomes the loser economically. The one who is still walking around after the fight must finance the physical recovery of the one who is in bed. The focus of judicial concern is on the victim who suffers the greatest physical injury. Biblical law and Jewish law impose economic penalties on the injury-inflicting visitors of such private conflicts. As Maimonides put it, quote, The sages have penalized strong-armed fools by ruling that the injured person should be held trustworthy. Dot, 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 end quote. Games of Bloodshed The murderous games of ancient Rome, where gladiators slew each other in front of cheering crowds, violated biblical law. The same is true of sports like boxing, where the inflicting of injuries is basic to victory. The lure of bloody games is decidedly pagan. Augustine, in his Confessions, speaks of a former student of his, Alpheus. The young man had been deeply fond of the Circesian games of Carthage. Augustine had persuaded him of their evil, and the young man stopped attending. Later on, however, in Rome, Alpheus met some fellow students who dragged him in a friendly way to the Roman amphitheater on the day of the bloody games. He swore to himself that he would not even look, but he did, briefly, and was trapped. Quote, As he saw that blood, he drank in savageness at the same time. He did not turn away, but fixed his sights on it, and drank in madness without knowing it. He took delight in that evil struggle, and he became drunk on blood and pleasure. He was no longer the man who entered there, but only one of the crowd that he had joined, and a true comrade of those who brought him there. What more shall I say? He looked, he shouted, he took fire, he bore away with himself, a madness that should arouse him to return, not only with those who had drawn him there, but even before them, and dragging others along as well. End quote. Only later was his faith in Christ able to break his addiction to the games. In the city of Trier, Treves, in what is today Germany, alien hordes burned the city down in the early 5th century, murdering people and leaving their bodies in piles. Salvian, the presbyter, records what took place immediately thereafter. Quote, A few nobles who survived destruction demanded circuses from the emperors as the greatest relief for the destroyed city. End quote. They wanted the immediate reconstruction of the arena, not the town's walls, 
So powerful was the hold of the bloody games on the minds of Roman citizens. Chaos Festivals Roger Kalis, in his book Man and the Sacred, 1959, argues that the chaos festivals of the ancient and primitive worlds served as outlets for hostilities. These festivals are unfamiliar to most modern citizens, or in the case of the familiar ones, such as Mardi Gras in New Orleans, Carnival in the Caribbean, or New Year's Eve parties in many nations, they are not recognized for what they are. He writes, quote, It is a time of excess. Reserves accumulated over the course of several years are squandered. The holiest laws are violated, those that seem at the very basis of social life. Yesterday's crime is now prescribed, and in place of customary rules, new taboos and disciplines are established, the purpose of which is not to avoid or soothe intense emotions, but rather to excite and bring them to climax. Movement increases, and the participants become intoxicated. Civil or administrative authorities see their powers temporarily diminish or disappear. This is not so much to the advantage of the regular sacerdotal caste as to the gain of secret confraternities or representatives of the other world, masked actors personifying the gods or the dead. This fervor is also the time for sacrifices, even the time for the sacred, a time outside of, the, of time that recreates, purifies, and rejuvenates society. Dot, dot, dot. All excesses are permitted, for society expects to be regenerated as a result of excesses, waste, orgies, and violence. End quote. It was these festivals, he argues, that in some way drained off the violent emotions inherent in men. On the contrary, such festivals stimulated violent emotions. The festivals, he argues, were therefore basic to the preservation of social peace. Without these ritual celebrations of lawlessness, he argues, there will be an increase of actual wars. In other words, men innately require the tension and release of violence, prohibit the socially circumscribed ritual chaos of Mardi Gras, Carnival, and New Year, and we therefore supposedly risk the outbreak of war. Because modern man has suppressed such ritual chaos, he concludes, we have seen the increase of wars and their intensity and devastation. In contrast, Takeo's analysis stands the Bible. Leaders in a godly social order should strive to eliminate such chaos festivals and circumscribed violence. The laws requiring restitution for anyone injured in a brawl are related to the general prohibition against individual violence. Lawlessness is to be suppressed. Man is not told to give vent to his feelings of violence. He is told to overcome them through self-discipline under God. Wars and violence come from the lusts of men, James 4.1. These bloody lusts are to be overcome, not ritually sanctioned. The celebration of communion is God's sanctioned bloody ritual, which gives men symbolic blood. But the Bible forbids the drinking of actual blood. Leviticus 3.17, Deuteronomy 12.16 and 23, Acts 15.20. Biblical Law Confronts the Honorable Duel the Bible informs us that the civil government is to protect human life. Each man is made in God's image, and men, acting as private citizens, do not have the right to attempt to attack God indirectly by attacking His image in other men. Men are not sovereign over their own lives or over the lives of others. God is. Revelation 
God delegates the right of execution to the civil government, not to individual men acting outside a lawful institution, in the pursuit of lawful objectives. The private duel is just such a threat to human life and safety. Fighting is a threat to social peace. It is disorderly, willful, vengeful, and hypothetically autonomous. It poses a threat to innocent bystanders. Exodus 21, 22-25 It can destroy property. When a death or serious injury is involved, a duel can lead in some societies, especially those that place family status above civil law, to an escalation of interfamily feuding and blood vengeance. The premise of the duel, or the brawl, is the assertion of the existence of zones of judicial irresponsibility. Men set aside for themselves a kind of arena in which the laws of civil society should not prevail. There may or may not be rules governing the private battlefield, but these rules are supposedly special, removing men from the jurisdiction of civil law. The protection of life and limb, which is basic to the civil law, is supposedly suspended by mutual consent. Common laws supposedly have no force over uncommon men during the period of the duel. Somehow, the law of God does not apply to private warriors who defend their own honor and seek to impose a mutually agreed-upon form of punishment on their rivals. But the laws of God do apply. The Bible does not permit the use of force to resolve disputes, except where force is lawfully exercised by God's ordained officer, the civil magistrate. To put it another way, the Bible requires men to submit to arbitration and categorically prohibits them from taking their own personal vengeance. Romans 12, 17-13-7 An obvious implication of the biblical law against dueling is the prohibition of gladiatorial contests, which would include boxing. A boxer who kills another man in the ring should be executed. Another implication is the necessity of rejecting the notion of a fair fight. There's no such thing as a fair fight. Flight is almost always preferable to private fighting. But where fighting is unavoidable, it should be an all-out confrontation. Should a person fight fair when his wife is attacked? Should women under attack from a man fight fairly? The answer ought to be clear. Thus the code of the duel is doubly perverse. First, it imputes cowardice to a man who would seek to keep the peace by walking away from a challenge to his honor. Second, it restricts a man's lawful self-defense to a set of agreed-upon rules of the game. Fighting is not a game. It is either an evil assertion of personal autonomy or else a necessary defense of life, limb, and perhaps property. Duel to death. Murder. One implication of Exodus 21, 18 and 19 is that a death resulting from a duel or a brawl is to be regarded as murder. This is a concept of personal responsibility that is foreign to societies that allow private violence. In such societies, the quest for personal power and prestige overrides the quest for public peace. The autonomy of man is affirmed by the ritual practices of the duel and brawl. Wyatt Brown writes of the antebellum pre-1861 American South, quote, Ordinarily, honor under the dueling test called for public recognition of a man's claim to power whatever social level he or his immediate circle of friends might belong to. A street fight could and often did accomplish the same thing for the victor, murder, or at least manslaughter, inspired the same public approval in some instances. Just as lesser folks spoke ungrammatically, as so too they fought ungrammatically, but their actions were expressions of the same desire for prestige." End quote. 
Under biblical law, injured bystanders are protected from deliberate violence on the part of other people on an eye-for-eye basis. An injured loser who walks again is entitled to full compensation. But in the case where the loser dies, the judges are required to impose a capital sentence on a surviving fighter. When the loser cannot walk abroad, the victor must not be quit. At best, he would have to pay an enormous fine to the family of the dead man. But even this would seem to be too lenient, since the only instance of a substitution of payment for the death sentence involves criminal negligence, the failure to contain a dangerous beast which subsequently kills a man, but not willful violence, Exodus 21, 29, and 30. The autonomous shedding of man's blood, even to defend one's good name, is still murder. There is the perverse lure of such conflicts of honor. It is clear that if a biblically honorable man refuses to fight because the civil law supports his position, by threatening him with death should he successfully kill his opponent, he can avoid the fight in the name of personal self-confidence. He says, in effect, I know I can probably kill you. Therefore, I choose not to enter this fight because I will surely be executed after I kill you. Thus, he can avoid being regarded as a coward. This breaks the central social hold that the code duello has always possessed, the honorable man's fear of being labeled a coward. But in order to deflect this powerful hold, the state must be willing to enforce the death penalty on victors. Courts and Vigilantes Legal predictability is crucial to the preservation of an orderly society. The breakdown of predictable justice in any era can lead to a revival of blood vengeance. Those who are convinced that the court system is unable to dispense justice and defend the innocent are tempted to take the law into their own hands. The rise of vigilante groups that take over the administration of physical sanctions always comes at the expense of legal predictability. This is a sign of the breakdown in the legal order, and it is accompanied by a loss of legitimacy by establishment institutions. Eventually, Vigilante movements are either stamped out by the existing social order, or else they become the foundation of a new social order, the Warlord Society. The various vigilante movements of the United States in the 19th century arose when the civil authorities would not or could not enforce the law. Vigilantes were common in the American West after the Civil War, prior to the establishment of local and regional judicial order. The most famous vigilante group in U.S. history is the Ku Klux Klan, the original Ku Klux Klan of the American South, 1865-71, was a defensive movement. The organization was self-consciously a cult in its regalia. Members wore white sheets with holes cut out for eyes so that they would resemble the folklore versions of ghosts, thereby adding to the terror of superstitious former slaves. The Klan was highly liturgical, its rituals filled with diabolic symbols, hidden signs, and other elements of secret societies and it predictably degenerated into violence and lawlessness within a few years. It was officially disbanded in 1869, and when local dens persisted, it was stamped out by the U.S. military. An imitation of the old Klan rose again to national political prominence in the 1920s, only to fade nationally in the 1930s, and in the South in the 1940s. Today, numerous local Klan-type groups exist, but they have little influence, but the Klan's former power testifies to the fact that when civil courts fail to dispense justice and therefore lose their legitimacy in the eyes of large numbers of citizens, societies will eventually see the rise of private dispensers of people's justice. Without a sense of legitimacy, 
the authority of public courts is threatened. The courts need legitimacy in order to gain the long-term voluntary cooperation of the public, meaning self-government under law, without which law enforcement becomes both sporadic and tyrannical. No legal system can afford the economic resources that would be necessary to gain full compliance to an alien law order in a society whose members are unwilling to govern themselves voluntarily in terms of that law order. If the courts do not receive assent from the public as legitimate institutions, they can maintain the peace only by imposing sentences whose severity goes beyond people's sense of justice, which again calls into doubt both legitimacy and legal predictability. Judicial Pluralism and Social Disintegration A civil government that refuses to defend a law order that is seen as legitimate by the public is inviting the revival of the duel, the feud, and blood vengeance. If the public cannot agree on standards of decency, then the courts will be tempted to become autonomous. Widespread and deep differences concerning religion lead to equally strong disagreements over morality and law. Religious pluralism leads to moral and judicial pluralism, meaning unpredictable courts. Religious pluralism is an outgrowth of polytheism. Polytheism inescapably leads to what we might call polylegalism. Too many law courts decide in terms of conflicting moralities. Only the strong hand of centralized and bureaucratic civil government can enforce a single standard of law on a religiously divided public, which is why religious and judicial pluralism ultimately leads to tyranny, the grab for power. Long-term judicial pluralism is a myth. One group or another ultimately must decide what is right and what is wrong, what should be prohibited by civil law and what shouldn't. The myth of judicial pluralism has hidden from the people, including Christians, the reality of the inescapable intolerance of all civil government. There can no more be religious neutrality on earth than in heaven, and as time moves toward that final court decision, the impossibility of pluralism is becoming more obvious. Either God or Satan will execute final judgment. Either God's law or man's law will be imposed on eternity. The covenant representatives of each kingdom will, on earth and in history, progressively present their respective supernatural sovereign's case to the world. There's no way to reconcile these competing claims. Marxism cannot be reconciled with Christianity, and neither system can be reconciled with Islam. The liberal humanists hope in treaties, arms control, and endless tax-supported economic deals with communist nations is as doomed to failure as the conservative humanists' faith in the peace-promoting reign of neutral, natural law. Elijah's challenge is inescapable. How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Then as now, the people delay making a decision. And the people answered him not a word. 1 Kings 18.21 They did not remain silent forever. The fire came from heaven and consumed the sacrifice on God's altar. The people saw, understood, and acted. They brought the 850 priests of Baal to Elijah, who killed them. 1 Kings 18.40 The nation for the moment sided with God's prophet. The priests of Baal, of any era, can delay judgment for a while, but eventually judgment comes in history. Nevertheless, without a change in heart the people eventually return to their old ways. The revolution consumes its own children. The prophet is again put on the run. 1 Kings 19 The humanist courts of our day 
appeal to religious pluralism, yet they are creating judicial tyranny. The anti-feud, anti-clan, anti-dual ethic of once Christian Western bourgeois cultures, societies in which social peace has fostered economic growth, is being undermined by judges who are creating lawlessness in the name of a purified humanist legal system. Judicial pluralism must be replaced, but not from the top down, and not from the vigilante's noose outward. The satanic myth of legal pluralism must be replaced by the power of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men. The Holy Spirit is the enforcer in New Testament times. Conclusion Social order requires a degree of social peace. When biblical law began to influence the civil governments of the West, an increase of social peace and social order took place. This, in turn, led to greater economic growth and technological development. Christian culture is orderly. The Christian West steadily abolished or redirected the chaos festivals of the pagan world until the growth of humanism, paganism, began to reverse this process. Legal systems became predictable as the eye-for-eye principle spread alongside the gospel of salvation. The unpredictable violence of state power was thereby reduced. In private relationships, men were not allowed to vent their wrath on each other in acts of violence. Those who violated this law became economically liable for their actions. The duel, or brawl, is by nature a direct challenge to the authority and legitimacy of the civil government. It transfers to individuals operating outside the state the God-ordained monopoly of violence, a degree of legal immunity from civil judgment. It transfers sovereignty in the administration of violence from the state to the individual. It is not surprising, therefore, that one program of legal reform recommended by some contemporary libertarian anarchists is the legalization of dueling. The duel is seen as a private act between consenting adults and therefore sacrosanct. Sacrosanct from sacro equals sacred right and sanctum equals holy and inviolable. Also related to sanction equals legal and sovereign authority or a judgment by a legal and sovereign authority. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.